Welcome to Real Wealth, Real Health, the show that empowers you with insights, information, and inspiration to achieve your version of financial wellness. Learn how to balance living a full life today with planning for the future. This podcast is brought to you by Alpha Investing, a real estate-centric private capital network that provides exclusive investment opportunities to its members. And now, here are your hosts, Ada Piedrico and Daniel Coca. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Real Wealth, Real Health. Our guest today is Jeremy Goodrich. Jeremy is an entrepreneur, investor, podcaster, and the owner of Shine Insurance. He specializes in making commercial real estate insurance smart and simple. We talked to Jeremy about his trajectory from fourth grade school teacher to insurance business owner. He candidly conveys the financial motivation that led to his decision to become an entrepreneur and how this journey has evolved to a place where he is now able to diversify into wealth building assets like real estate syndications and funds. As an accredited investor with a keen eye for risk mitigation, Jeremy knows the value of a solid operator and business plan. We get into the technicalities of insurance for commercial real estate, what investors should be considering, and how they should approach working with an agent. According to Jeremy, 80% of investors don't have adequate coverage. We also talk about the implications of the tragic Surfside condo collapse in Florida. Our hearts go out to everyone who has been affected by this tragedy. Thinking about and properly implementing insurance is a foundation to a solid real estate investment that covers all scenarios. Thanks to Jeremy's ability to clearly and simply articulate complexity, he explains real estate insurance in a way that actually makes sense and is interesting. Jeremy, welcome to the podcast. So happy to be here, y'all. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's such a pleasure to to have you on the on the show today. You know, one of the reasons why, well, two reasons I really wanted to have this conversation with you. One is we're going to talk we're going to cover a topic that I certainly take for granted, which is the importance of like an insurance insurance in real estate, especially commercial real estate. An investor once asked me, you know, why, you know, do do you have the insurance contract? Do you look at do you look at those? And I thought, my goodness, of course we do. Like, oh, how dare you ask if we look at insurance contracts? But, you know, so basic to me and, you know, and then there's so many nuances and it's really, really important to look at. So I wanted to touch on that. And then the other reason is that you're really passionate about that and you're passionate about entrepreneurship and, and what you share and you're on a mission. And I really want to get into that and how you're serving your purpose in this industry. And, and then, uh, we always look into, you know, how you consider wealth and, and how you're building a life that allows you to live your purpose and plan for the future. Mm. I love it. Yeah. So can I start by just kind of sharing how, how I got to that point? Does that sound yes. good? Yes. So, you know, I, I grew up uh, like the, the, you use the word servant, and I think that's an interesting word to use. And I really connect with that word. I grew up in a household in San Diego, California, not far from you. My dad is a, a minister. He's been a minister his whole life. He's still a minister now. And uh, so I kind of grew up in a household where servitude, serving was a thing, right? 
And I would say that the positive of that is that you're doing really good things for people. You feel like you're giving your life over to something of a higher meaning, a higher calling, spiritual experience, whatever that is for you. For my dad, it was Christianity. For many people, it's many other things. And then I became a school teacher when I grew up, right? So I taught elementary school for 13 years. Same basic concept, right? Where you are doing some, I made $27,000 a year for 13 years of my adult life. I ran up credit card debt just to get by on normal everyday things, right? And so that idea is I'm really rooted in. And some of that scarcity mentality when it comes to the finances was deeply rooted in me as well. And at some point I realized I needed to make a switch, make a change really in a lot of ways for financial purposes, right? I can't live off of $27,000 a year anymore or I'm not willing to maybe is another way to say that. And so I was looking for how to move into other spaces. And at that point I had met my wife and business partner who is a third generation insurance agent. Long story, very short, we decided to jump from the job that she had and the job that I had and start our own insurance agency basically going at it as if we were teachers. I've, I've remained a teacher, I've remained an educator and I've remained someone who believes He's kind of serving a community of people by simply providing them something of value and continuing forward in that way. So that is the very quick version. I think I went through 45 years of story in about two minutes there. I hope that was an okay timeline. <laughs> That's amazing. I need to learn how to do that because I'm I, I I tend to ramble a, a lot, but I like that you you know you you picked up on that thread. And I often talk about meaning, like what's meaningful to us and why do we do anything? It's you know, often referred to as having your why and your essence and and your purpose. And you know how do you find that? in real estate and why, you know, why is this such an important topic and piece of the, the overall real estate transaction when we're looking at it from the, the perspective of being investors? Yeah. So for me, like it started with insurance and then moved into real estate. Right. And I just gave the description of why I left teaching and became an insurance agent. And I just, I certainly didn't say that my passion was for insurance my entire life. And I finally realized my calling by leaving teaching and going out into insurance, that really wasn't it, right? I needed to create some financial foundation for me. But then I decided, okay, where is the space that I can live in that does fulfill my passions, that is interesting to me above and beyond the value in providing for this specific thing that I provide? And real estate was the answer to that question. I Loved helping first-time home buyers, walking them through the process, not only the insurance side, but obviously all the other things. And I started recording YouTube videos. And now my YouTube channel has 13, 14,000 subscri subscribers all around real estate. So it started with first-time home buyers. Then I started helping residential investors. And now most of my videos are either around insurance or commercial real estate. And so commercial real estate was a passion for me mostly because it's a fascinating space with a diverse community of people in it. Like every single person I talk with, engage with, come onto shows with, has some just really cool different story, right? They're in different parts of the country. They have different stories, how they got to real estate. It's just a fascinating space to be in. And I like moving fast and real estate moves fast. So I guess that's, that's a part as well. 
Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it definitely moves fast, especially, especially these days. Well, let's just talk like really technically for just a couple of, of minutes about, you know, foundationally, what should investors uh, be looking for in an insurance contract for a commercial building? Like what are some, like, what are some basics? Absolutely. So I, I kind of look at it from two sides. The operator is generally the person who's engaging with the insurance advisor. Generally, there's three or four people in an operating team and whoever is kind of tasked with bringing the service provider in is going to engage that person. And, and I think my number one piece of advice, no matter how we go deep into the details of insurance policies, is the mentality and mindset that you go into connecting with that person. I think when we hire a lawyer or an attorney or certainly a property manager, we're looking at it from one perspective. And when we go to the insurance side, we switch for some reason, right? And when we're looking at that first group of people, we're like, do I trust them? Do I believe that they have my best interests in mind? Do I think that they're going to put together a contract that makes the most sense, that's going to be the most beneficial to me, but also fair to everyone in the process? And then we think about insurance and it's like, who's the cheapest person? Let me see the lowest number and I'll make five or six different people bid for my business and I'll pick the cheapest one will be done. And I think that mentality is problematic. I think that the reality, especially with commercial real estate, is that one, that, that we have access to many of the same companies and it's really the, the agent's job, your advisor's job to make companies battle for your business, to go out there and pit them against each other. And a good advisor, I was having lunch with an insurance company person today and saying, look, the reason I'm not placing business with you is because you can't get to the price I need you to be at. Like I'm doing that, right? And when you have multiple insurance agents doing that, then they're doing that to multiple insurance companies. And now it's sort of a just a mess. I think that you find the person you trust, you establish that relationship, you see them as a member of your team, and then you expect them to perform for you and pull out a policy that is of quality and the best price at the same time. So I think the first key piece when picking an insurance advisor is the same as many of your other service members and, and team. It's, it's pick because you trust that person and you believe in that person, not just because they brought you the cheapest price. That's a really good point and, and great advice. And so when I'm, when I'm thinking about, you know, the policies on, on a commercial real estate, is it, is it one policy that covers everything? Are there different policies for different things? Like, let's say it's a value add. Is that going to be, uh, how does one think about insurance for value add versus something that's like stabilized versus a senior housing, which is more operational? Like, how would, how would you think through some of that? I mean, the answer is it depends. I think that you, the, the best thing you can do, if you can put everything on one policy, like a master policy where you've got your thousand doors and you've got your insurance advisor and you call that advisor to say, I'm about to pick up a 250 unit in uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma. And your advisor says, okay, well, tell me a little bit about it. And then goes out and tries to pitch it to that same company. We can just add it to the master policy. We get the best rate, the best price, the best coverage, and the smoothest, easiest process. That's great. That's perfect. It doesn't always happen that way. So I just placed one in New Orleans, Louisiana, that was about 80% vacant. So 20% occupancy right on the coast, heavy value add, had aluminum wiring built in the 1970s, you know, about $2 million in renovations. And, you know, it, I didn't have very many options. 
available to me, right? There's not going to be a lot of insurance companies that are going to help. So I didn't put that one on the master portfolio for that investor because that company that had the master portfolio was like, no way, I'm not touching that thing, right? So I had to go out and find another company for that. Now, when it comes around next year, they've done the renovations, they've updated the breakers, it's got copper wiring instead of aluminum wiring, they've got occupancy up above 70, 80%. Now I can move it back over to that master policy and put it together. So a good advisor is always looking at like, what's my best option? And if that's not going to work, what's my second best option? And if that's not going to work, what's my third best option? And bringing it all together to, to make it work as best it can for, for the investor. Oh, excellent. And so does this mean that you would you know, follow up with this investor when you know more or less they're going to be done with the renovation and, and, you know, maybe like going in again on their behalf to try to renegotiate and, and change it? Yeah. I mean, most insurance policies have an annual renewal. So that would be an obvious point if we're not doing it at a different time. If there was a renovation that was going to be a heavy lift like that and done in six months, yeah, we could potentially move it over onto the master policy and save some money there. There could be some factors in the mix, like some insurance policies, once you've paid money to it, you can't get that money back. So if that's the case on that policy, we wouldn't want to move it in the middle of a term because you're not going to get your money back. So there's some details in the weeds, but yeah, absolutely. I'm, you know, my investors know if, if it's going to be cheaper after they're done with the renovation and when they're done, check in with me. Let's look at what we can do and take it from there. So Jeremy, I'm an investor. I'm looking at investing into a deal. It's a you know 200 unit apartment building, right? I'm curious, what are the things that I should be thinking about in the context of an insurance policy? I know when I look at deals, I look at the expense line item. I see insurance. I look at it, you know, compared to you know total operating expenses, and say, okay, this seems about right, but that's really the end of, of kind of how I think about it. And so I guess my question is one, is it necessary or important for investors to take a deeper dive into the insurance policies on, on these types of deals? Or is it really just about, about the cost? How, how do you think about it? What's important? I think about 80% of real estate investors have terrible insurance policies that are going to fail them in a claim situation. That's a pretty high number. And I think the reason for that, Daniel, is, is kind of what you're saying there where we, they just looked at the number and they were like, hey, the number looks pretty good. Let's move on with all the other underwriting stuff we have to do, right? And I think that just a little bit deeper dive, you know, just for one period of time, taking 20 minutes, I create, when I create a proposal for clients, I create about a 10 minute video. And sometimes I feel like that's too long, but it's 10 minutes. And if you pay attention to that video, I will give you all the information you need to make an intelligent decision about insurance, put it away and be done with it until at least the next annual renewal, right? So I do think that you need to dig in a little bit deeper than price, but there's really, if you, if you want to just go below the surface on that, there's three things that I would pay attention to. The first is what the insured value of the buildings are. And basically, if you take the square footage and it's at least $100 a square foot of coverage, obviously it can depend on where it is in the country, what the type of building is. An A-class building as compared to a C-class building is going to be a different replacement cost, but at least $100 a square foot. 
for that property? Do you have that kind of coverage? Because there's all sorts of things that go wrong if your coverage goes below that number. Not just that you couldn't rebuild the entire complex if the whole thing burned down, but other elements inside the policy that are built to have consequences if you underinsure. So what's the total insured value of the building? Do you feel okay with that? That's number one. Number two is liability coverage. So I've got a, a claim going on right now where a tenant fell on ice this winter, broke her wrist. It's not that big of a deal, right? But she does want potential payment from the owner of the building. Well, who's the owner of the building? That's you as the investor. And that's where your general liability coverage comes in. That situation, worst case, probably $10,000. May not even be something that you end up paying out on an insurance policy. But what happens if something worse happens, of you know, some kind of collapse or some terrible things? I'm not you know, really into telling terrible stories, but there are terrible stories, obviously. And you know, that's the liability coverage. So definitely, I mean, even if you've got millions of dollars in you know, your fund or your bank or whatever, and you're like, I don't even need insurance, you need liability coverage, if nothing else. And then the third one, the last one is called loss of income coverage. And that's simply if your building goes down and you can't make money off of it for a year while we're rebuilding it, the insurance policy can actually pay back that lost income as a part of the claim. And obviously that could be huge in a situation and be the difference between, you know, a catastrophic scenario financially and making it through the situation because the insurance policy is paying out that lost income. So there it is. We just spent three minutes on three things. And I think every investor should, every active investor, passive investors are a little bit of a different conversation, but every active in investor, every operator should at least pay attention to those three pieces along with the price as they make their decision. So I wanted to, to understand in the context uh, that you were talking about earlier, where people should be thinking about insurance and the way to ultimately determine if there's coverage, right? Because you know, as a, as an individual who doesn't have, you know, the inside knowledge to the insurance industry, my assumption is always, you know, the building collapses, something happens, insurance is going to cover it. But I feel like anecdotally and probably practically, that's just not always the case, right? Insurance companies try to get out of their obligations. They rely on the fine print. And so how do I know like, hey, I'm, I'm actually insured. Like if something happens, if anything happens, that's, you know, broadly within the scope of what we discuss, I'm going to be compensated. Because I think to your point, that's the most important thing, right? Certainty of, of payment. And so how do I think about that? I think I have, I have two thoughts on what you just said there. The first is whether insurance companies are trying to get out of things. I think some are, absolutely. I think there are insurance companies who are set up and train their team to find the weaknesses in a policy in a claim situation and try and avoid paying claims. There's zero doubt that that happens and that exists. It's a lot smaller of a group than you think though. Most insurance companies are trying to pay claims as the contract is built to pay them. They have no intention of not following through with the agreement they made with you. They don't wanna get in a big fight. They don't wanna get in litigation. They don't wanna get the bad rap of having not paid claims. So I think most insurance companies really are trying to pay claims. I think the problem comes in the fact that what you said, Dan, it was, it's like you think that everything is going to be covered in the way the contract is set up. It, it's, that's just not the case, right? It covers a lot of stuff, depends on the insurance policy you bought and what was in there. But something like flood is the biggest example of something that truly just is not covered on most 
commercial property policies. You have to buy a flood insurance policy separately uh, from FEMA in most cases. So it, insurance is a contract and it comes with things it covers and things it doesn't cover. And I know that that's a very broad thing to say. And obviously you would like need to become an insurance agent to understand all the details of it. But just understanding that basic piece and saying, okay, it's not built to cover everything, but the better policy I get, the more stuff it covers. And there's some trust I just have to put in my advisor, but that comes back to why it's so important to have that person. So we could talk for hours about all the specific details about what is and what isn't covered. But I think the bottom line is insurance is a contract. It's, a, it's an a agreement. It's a promise. You know, what I sell is a promise. I promise that I will do these things if the, these bad things happen. But it's a specific promise that has a lot of details in it built over years and years and decades and centuries of back and forth about what an insurance policy does and doesn't cover. So when you said 80% of you know, active investors won't be able to rely on their insurance, which I think is what you're saying, I might be paraphrasing. What, what exactly do you mean by that? I think that I, I, I base that number off of the review I do of, of investors' insurance policies. So investors often call me and say, hey, will you review my policy? And I basically go over it and I create another a video, about a 10-minute video that says, here's what I see, here's what I see you have and what I see you don't have. And what I see a lot is an investor went out and got the cheapest insurance policy and it has these holes in it that are just gaping. I'll give you an example. So that underinsured, I talked about that earlier, right? If you have a building that's 10,000 square feet, you should probably have a million dollars of coverage just as a general foundation. I see all the time 10,000 square foot buildings that are insured for $500,000, right? Half of what they should be insured for. So that policy is already not going to take care of you. But the insurance company also has, a, it's called a co-insurance clause, where they penalize you even in small claims for having underinsured. So if you insured at $500,000, you were supposed to insure at a million dollars. Even if you have a $40,000 claim, they're only going to pay out 50% of that because you only insured for 50%. So now you've got $20,000 paid out in a $40,000 claim minus your $10,000 deductible. You had a $40,000 bad thing happen. You're only getting $10,000 from the insurance company. So that's a very quick example of just by underinsuring. And why did your insurance agent choose to do that? Well, they wanted to show you the best price because they wanted to get the business. Instead of taking care of you like they would take care of themselves, they wanted to win the business. So they underinsured you and now your policy doesn't take care of you. That's the most common example I see is just way underinsuring a building. Yeah, I like to get into it. I have, I have another question that like we can maybe do at the end, but I am actually really interested in like what happens in like a Surfside, Florida situation when you've got a condo and building and, and you know, there's going to be 150 wrongful death lawsuits, right? And so, you know, who is it the insurance company or the individual owners? I'm really interested about that. We don't have to go down that path here. I'd be happy to, but you guys tell me. You tell me, Adapia. I don't want to sidetrack us, but it's something no, I'm personally I interested in. I was actually going to ask. I, I was also thinking, you know, is it inappropriate not to be like insensitive to what's going on for for what's going on? But it's a 
prime example. So Jeremy, if you, if you have some thoughts on that, I think that's, it's timely and it's important because we can't, okay, here's the thing. We might also not want to talk about these things because they're uncomfortable, but that's exactly what we need to talk about because that's when we're not talking about it and not thinking about worst case, we're going to overlook and just say, oh yeah, it'll be fine and walk away. And I think it's actually really important to, to, to go there because it's what we don't want to have happen. But to some degree, I think we need to be prepared for it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, anytime there's loss of life, and obviously in this case, significant loss of life, like it, it's the worst case scenario. This is, and this example is truly the worst case scenario. And as far as how insurance policies play out, I'll stay very surface and just give you a few things that I think we will see as this, as this situation does play out. So the biggest issues will be around decisions over the course of the process, right? Anytime a bad thing happens, the lawyers and the insurance companies are looking for the source of the bad thing that happened. And I imagine there will be litigation around this for probably years to come as to what the source of the bad thing is that happened because it is so important for the financial side of all of this, right? Whose fault is it is where the liability lies. So, and, and therefore, it, when there are civil suits and all the things that will rightfully come out of this situation for the loss of life that happened, you know, the, the liability and whose fault it is, is really important. Before I get into the liability and who it is, the bottom line is there's a lot of insurance policies that are just going to pay out the limit of liability that is on the policy. I talked about a million dollars or $5 million dollars. You know, a lot of insurance companies in this situation are just going to say, hey, this could go on for decades. We're going to pay out with the coverage that we have and be done with it. Now, who gets paid and how is a, especially with as many folks who will be involved in this as there are, is a complex scenario. I would imagine that there will be one court case that everyone's in together that will probably get settled at whatever point it is, and then probably everyone gets an equal amount of money from whomever is deemed to be at fault. So who is at fault? Well, the insurance policies we have at play are the general liability policy of the building owner. I believe in this case, it's a condo association. So you have an association, but then you also have the condo owner's policies and then you have a contract between the condo owners and the association. I think that the likely scenario is that it comes back to the association, particularly if we see there were inspections and things that happened within the years prior to this collapse and the directors and officers of the association did not take action, then it's going to come back on the directors and officers insurance policy for the association of those condos. I think that's the most likely place for the liability to lie, but there is also general liability. Well, no, that's where it would lie because that's likely the association policy. There's general liability and there's directors and officers. Did the directors and officers make mistakes? It's probably gonna be on the directors and officers policies. Did something just happen because of the building? Probably gonna be on the general liability policy. Honestly, both policies probably pay out in this situation to their limits of liability because it's simply easier than what's gonna happen if it just stretches out forever. So that's where coverage aligns. I guess the third place could be if it was deemed that someone who built the structure built it incorrectly and that entity still exists, 
then the builders, even though it was 40 years ago, could potentially have some liability associated with them and experience a lawsuit as well. But one thing we can be sure is that lawyers are going to sue anyone and everyone. So lots of people are going to get sued and then it'll get whittled down to who's truly liable in this situation. So I just Googled this, and so I'm not going to stand 100% behind it, but I believe Florida is a state that eliminated like the joint and several liability when you have contributory negligence in, in some type of accident, right? And so you used to be able to, if there were three people who were partially responsible, all of them were individually responsible for the full amount if one group couldn't pay the full thing, right? And that's why you tied in so many different groups, because like if you could get some person with big pockets that was 5% liable, they could be held responsible for the whole thing. And, and so Florida, along with a lot of other states, abolished that because like maybe 10 or 15 years ago. And so I guess I'm curious, like in this situation, you, I assume there will probably be multiple different parties that did something wrong that were party to that to that bad act. And so I guess it's, does that mean you need to then sue you know, all of these individuals and like try to recover from them. And I guess from an insurance perspective, right? Like the insurance policy is, is what we'd expect to, to cover any given, you know, bad actor. But I guess I wonder if it just makes that rule makes it really hard to recover and how you think about state by state differences. Cause not, you know, there's different levels to all this. If, if that rambling Makes no, no, sense. that makes total sense. I think a, a couple of key points to remember. One is that liability in lawsuits is a legal thing, and the insurance company is there to defend and potentially pay out settlements, right? So they're, they're t- we, we often think of the insurance as like the, the lawsuit, but they're actually two parallel things. The insurance is responding because a lawsuit happens. The specifics of the law in Florida, I think I'll avoid. But what I do know is that Florida is very, like the legal space in Florida is very pro-lawyer, pro-lawsuit, fairly anti-insurance company. In fact, besides hurricanes and other reasons why insurance companies run from Florida, the litigation laws in Florida are another reason why insurance companies don't want to be there. Now, again, I don't know the details of those. All I know is that basic piece of information. As far as like, you know, having things together, separate, all those kinds of things, I think that's probably out of, out of my space of expertise. I know that insurance companies find themselves in lawsuit scenarios more often or settling lawsuits more often in Florida than many other states states because of the laws that exist there. Wow. Well, if you couldn't tell, Dan's a lawyer. <laughs> well, do you agree with me, Dan? Does that sound right to you? It, it, it does. And I, I think the, the nuance of, you know, different states and, you know, how their legislative policies impact insurance and, and how you purchase insurance and how you litigate it. It's, it's like law school, right? It's always really interesting in theory, but it so infrequently plays out in practice that you don't really get to have like the discussion about it. And so that's why I've, I've been overly interested it, just because it's like, you know, it's, it's a law theory applied to an actual situation. Absolutely. And it, it is interesting. I think from the insurance side, just boiling it down to not have the super fun law conversation is probably a bunch of policies are going to pay out their limits. That's the bottom line here, you know, but it does matter in different states because it all comes back to actuarial pricing, right? If there's a bunch of lawsuits and whether fairly or not is not a judgment I'm making in this conversation, you know, if a bunch of lawsuits pay out 
much higher in Florida than they do in Oklahoma, then you're gonna see higher insurance prices in Florida than Oklahoma. This is just sort of the, the back and forth between payout and price and how we balance these things. Yeah, this it's really insightful. And as you're having the exchange, I'm, I'm really thinking, you know, to have a lawyer on the team, like we have Dan on the team, like asking these questions, like even for other investors, and I know a lot of people obviously investing with alpha or passive, but, you know, understanding that these questions are really important to, to be having with the sponsors and with whomever they're working with. Like when we're doing our underwriting, we're, we're asking all of this and we're contemplating all of this and it's really important. And the, the way my mind works is as I'm thinking all of this in, you know, I'm synthesizing a lot of things and coming back to myself and also, you know, to, to Jeremy, to this idea of when we start out on our financial journey, right? You were at your $27,000 a year as a teacher, and then you decided something's going to change. When you start there, how important is it to actually like, you know, take your head out of the sand and really look at the things you don't want to look at in order to build where you want to go to? Or do, do you go, I'm just going to go hit that higher number and I'm going to start there and I'm going to work my way backwards. Like, how do you think about this in terms of even your journey of I'm going to get to over here because I want a different kind of life financially. Um, did it start for you with insurance and how important is that overall to somebody who's saying, I'm going to build my wealth, but I have to look at certain things I might not want to look at. I think that's a great question. I mean, I mean, when I think about it, I just knew what I didn't want. Right. I knew that I didn't want to be where I was at financially anymore. And I was willing to sacrifice myself as a teacher to go out and find that somewhere else. And so when I went to solve the question that you're asking, it was almost like, okay, I, I studied what it meant to be an entrepreneur. I, I'm not sure that I thought in the first few years of business, while I absolutely had financial goals and waypoints, we created a five-year plan and then worked backwards our three-year plan one-year plan, six-months plan. What does that mean I have to do a month from now? So we had financial goals and knew what we needed to do to survive. But in those first three years, I wasn't necessarily thinking long-term. It was just like, let's get this thing off the ground. I think the biggest thing I was thinking as an entrepreneur was, how do I run a business successfully? And how do I get to the end of this next waypoint in a space that's at least where I want to be on that waypoint, you know, on that journey, if not better and, and take it from there. So, I, I mean, I'm eight years into owning this business and I, I think in the last year or two has my mentality really come to surface around abundance as compared to scarcity around the idea of wealth and freedom, the, the freedoms that wealth can bring. I mean, for the first five years, it was just like, make the thing go. And, you know, as far as money goes, when 27K is, is your total annual income before, it doesn't take long to get back to it. But I really believe that only in the last two years have I truly started to realize, look, I have to have an abundance mindset and I have to have really huge goals and really huge whys for what I'm doing because that kind of growth comes from, you know, visualizing it and, and then doing it. Yeah, it makes me think a lot about Alpha's Alpha's beginnings too. And that that idea that the first few years are building, 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 and then you get to a point where you can take a step back and 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 start to think 
like a little bit differently about where to go from here. And, and it's found, you know, at that foundational, at that foundational level, I feel like as entrepreneurs we're it's always a push and pull between understanding the mindset importance and abundance and going for it. And also I guess being okay as entrepreneurs to not have necessarily that, that stability at first, because you're, you're building, you know, you're, you're building towards it. So, you know, it's a, it's a tightrope that, that we're constantly walking as entrepreneurs. And I find it especially poignant for those entrepreneurs in a financial industry, mm-hmm. which is, there's an assumption around, well, you're in it, you're in investing or you're in insurance, you must make a bunch of money because you're working in finance and it's not always the case. No. And I think that there's, you said something really important there is that balance between risk and stability. That's true as an entrepreneur, right? We're always sort of pouring from the cup of risk. Like how, how hard do we want to pour from that cup of risk? Do we want to just dump it upside down and just go for it and hope for the best? Most of us are not comfortable in that space. Do we want to just kind of have that steady stream pouring of risk? We're taking some risks, but we're, we're tolerating some risk, but we're doing it in a safe, reasonable way, certainly as a fund investor. You, you know, your investors expect you to sort of pour from the cup of risk in that way. But we're also looking for stability at the same time. We're balancing those two things. And what that made me think of as you were saying it, I was like, yes, as an entrepreneur, absolutely. But that's what insurance is too. Like, it's like, okay, let's let's be able to take more risks. I, I, I feel like insurance is the, the playing field leveler. If insurance didn't exist, the only investors out there would be the billionaires because they'd be the only ones who could take that big of a risk to buy a $10 million property or a $5 million property or a $500,000 property. You know, insurance is the thing that gives us the ability to spread the risk out and gives more people the ability to take those chances. I know there's more than just that, but that's one of the things that makes me feel passionate about is insurance is like it really does level the playing field and give a lot more people opportunities to take bigger risks. I like that perspective a lot. I've never thought about that before, but, but you're right that it does. It is a risk level. How interesting. Thank you for that. That's really, that's really cool. So I'd like to ask you now about, you know, you're, you're at this stage now in your career and your business and everything. And and you mentioned, you're able to start to think about wealth a little bit more. So as you started to come into that phase a couple of years ago, where did you start building wealth? Like where, you know, where from an, even from an asset allocation perspective, if you want to share, like, where did that begin and, and how has it evolved? So, you know, the, the heaviest investment we have is in, in the agency. So an insurance agency has a lot of attributes that are similar to real estate. So we have cash flow, which is the money coming in from annual renewals. Oftentimes people choose to stay with you the second year or the third year or the fourth year, and you get money coming in each of those years. So that sort of plays the role of cash flow. We have new business coming in or acquisition, right? Someone who knew who's coming in the door who wasn't with us before. And then we have equity because value of an insurance agency is significant. So lots of people are out there looking to buy books of business or your asset base. So, you know, I I think I just really started realizing that, you know, four or five years in, I was like, oh, wow, I am building an asset that has all of those elements, the cash flow, the acquisition and the equity all built into that space. So I'm obviously heavily invested in that, maybe too heavily. And so more recently, I've started to move, I want to move into more of real estate. I mean, I've been investing in, you know, all the traditional things that you do that W2 employees do and stuff like that. But so now I'm moving into passive investing 
and looking at, I mean, I see operating OMs and, and all the stuff over a daily. I see deals every day. And so I know, I mean, probably not as well as you, you two do, but I, I certainly have a sense of what a good deal looks like, what works for me, what I'm interested in. And so now I'm trying to diversify into real estate through passive investing in syndication funds, things of that nature. So I'm very lopsided right now but I'm moving into some balance overall and real estate is going to be the place where I- Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of entrepreneurs are heavily invested in, in their, in their own business and you take care of your employees and you have the 401ks and, and, and you have everything. I find too, you reflect a lot of what entrepreneurs that I've met say is that they get to that point and they look around and they realize that I think it's inherent in building a business that this idea of, you know, just maybe passive ETF investing doesn't quite feel right. Like it just doesn't feel the same as like building something. And I think a lot of people gravitate towards real estate because they understand that there's inherent wealth in the asset itself, which is similar in some ways to building a business, especially if it's a cash flowing asset. So I find a lot of entrepreneurs are very drawn to this. They get it. They're yeah. like, oh, I get it. I'm really building wealth. And then when you get into the world of passive investing in syndications and you realize how many opportunities are out there by asset class and strategy and you know geography that you can really get into some interesting things and that also make a difference in, in people's lives. Like if we're investing in, in senior housing distressed acquisitions to turn them around or affordable or, you know, there's so, so many different ways to make an impact as, as an investor as well. Yeah, I think that you have the impact capacity. And then again, you know, one of the great things about investing in real estate through like syndication funds and things of that nature is you're, you're getting to know an operator and then you're getting to do it over and over again with them, right? And part of what I do, being on the service team for all these folks is get to know them. I mean, that's inherently what, is it, what it is that we're up to. And so, I mean... I can't wait to be invested in some deals with some of my clients because I just love them. They're such good people. They're such smart investors. They have great deals over and over again. And so it was really a mat matter of having the liquidity to be able to do it. And that's fortunately starting to become a reality. And so being able to be in deals is just something I'm so pumped about. When I imagine like being able to pr protect an asset and know I'm invested in it myself, like that feels really, really good. So I'm just looking forward to that. That's exciting. I'm excited for you. I, I know I got really excited when I first came into like enough liquidity to build a portfolio. It was, it is, it's really exciting. And I love the perspective of saying that you, you, you do know a lot of operators and, and you get to know them. So it goes back to something that is fundamental for alpha too, when we're picking our sponsor partners is the right people, yeah. like, you know, numbers aside, but it's the right people because you're relying on them to do what they say they're going to do and to take care of you. So it's great that you have that insight and I'm really excited for you. Yeah. I mean, the assets matter and especially some of the assets you all are invested in that, you know, the, the senior housing thing is a really great example where you're doing good with your investments that really can be seen immediately as you turn around a property. Assets matter, the markets matter. There's obviously lots of good conversation about all those things, but really the operators are, are, are what it's all about. And, and, you know, a smart team that created a great business plan that then they can follow through with and navigate the ups and downs that inherently come with every single deal and then have a smart exit. It's just a neat thing, a neat thing to see. You know, I, I'm, I'm seeing some of my first exits from early clients 
And uh, it's just exciting. It's a fun thing to see. Yeah, we feel like we feel exactly the same way. So last question that I wanted to ask you and um, really looking forward to your answer on this is what does wealth mean to you? I mean, I guess it means stability. It's funny because like I've, I've said earlier in the conversation, the, the concept is, is rather young in my brain, right? Like it's three or four years old. It, it's, and really almost younger than that, like true freedom where I, I can look at wealth and be like, you know, five years from now, if I do all these things as I've set them up, like I'm going to be in a position where I really can make a lot of decisions about what I want to do rather than what I have to do. So it starts with stability. It starts with stability for my family. You know, we're, we don't have a bunch of nice things. We're not necessarily in that space or into that space. We want stability. We want to be comfortable. And we want to know that money is not an issue in our life. So many people navigate every single day having to figure out money. And, and like, I just feel so fortunate to not be in that position. And then, you know, so stability is one. Freedom is two. And then helping you know, our community and the folks that are out there. I mean, we, you know, we've been doing that from the very beginning and there's just something to be said for being able to help live someone else. One of the, the key uh, elements of our, our framework is rise by lifting others. And so it's, how do we do that? And so many people do so many great things. It's not some amazing different thing that we donate money and time to community organizations, but it feels really, really good to lift other folks up and help, you know, help, our community to get better and be better and uh, help ourselves to be better in, in that same way. Oh, thank you. I love that. I love the the rise by lifting others. You know, I feel the same way yeah. about that, about a way to, to give back. It can look like so many different so many different things. So thank you, Jeremy, so much for coming on the podcast. I know you have, you mentioned the YouTube channel. So can you just spend a few minutes letting people know where they can um, find you, reach out to you in case they um, have some questions? Sure. Yeah. Three real simple places. If you want to chat insurance, it's shineinsurance.com. If you want to chat real estate investing, my podcast is REI Clarity. And if you want to check out the YouTube videos on first time home buying, real estate investing, and of course, insurance, just search Shine Insurance on YouTube. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks so much, Jeremy. It was great to have you. It was my pleasure. Thank you both for having me. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Real Wealth, Real Health. We hope that you've enjoyed today's episode and found it both informative and insightful. We welcome all your questions and your feedback about today's episode. And especially, we welcome your questions about specific topics that you would like us to cover. So shoot us an email at podcast at alphai.com. And if you have a moment, we really appreciate ratings and reviews as it helps us grow our online community and our interactions with you. And we'll also be linking to a number of relevant articles on topics that we might have touched on during our conversations. Some of them are broad, some of them are technical, but we're always aiming to provide information that helps you better understand the mechanics of building this healthy financial foundation, especially if you're looking to do this with real estate. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.